Amen. Well, I just wanted to take a moment and introduce our uh, speaker tonight. And uh, I'm not sure how many of you know John Toon. Uh, I'm sure you've seen his face around the church, but uh, I don't know uh, that really only the lamplighters have had the privilege of sitting under his uh, ministry of the Word. And uh, he has uh, been a tremendous blessing to our lamplighter group and uh, a tremendous blessing to me. Uh, John and his wife Nancy have been here for several years now, and they were longtime members of Cypress Bible Church. Is that right? Down there? Yeah. And so they moved up this way, out in the country towards Dacus, and uh, they were uh, trying to find a church, and they were having a hard time. And one day they were driving back, I think from Home Depot maybe, and they drove, were driving down 105, and, and uh, Nancy pointed out to John, hey, there's this church, Lakeside Bible Church, Zoom, right by the sign, you know, and he's like, oh man, that's probably no good. And, you know, he's like, he's kind of cynical and uh, didn't think he could find a good church out here. And so she got on the, I guess her phone and was looking it up the, the website and looking at, you know, who the pastors were and where they were trained and all this kind of stuff. And like, whoa, check this out. And, and uh, so they ended up visiting and uh, have been coming ever since. And, um, it's just been a joy and a blessing to have the tunes here. And uh, if you've never had a conversation with John, um, I would encourage you to have one. Uh, at some point, he is really one of the most fascinating men I've ever met. And uh, he's got some stories to tell uh, from his years as a Navy fighter pilot. Um, did some crazy things in his uh, younger years, uh, flying jets for the Navy. And uh, then he became a Southwest pilot. He said that he had a it took him a little while to transition from flying a, a fighter jet to like a commercial airliner, and apparently the passengers on his first few flights, you know, they had quite a ride because uh, he thought he was still flying a jet, you know, a fighter jet, <laughs> and uh, kind of made some quick turns and things like that, but uh, he got the hang of it, and now he just recently retired, and uh, he's up in uh, Dallas most of the week now training uh, for Southwest and uh, doing a lot of the simulation for the younger guys coming up. And uh, so he, um, the one thing I just really appreciated about John is God has really gifted him to teach. And he takes the study of God's Word, the preparation uh, to preach very seriously. And uh, I've lost track of the times he's called me uh, from who knows where uh, when he was still flying for Southwest. And he's like, hey, Ken, I'm studying for Sunday. And, and he, you know, he'll fly and he'll land, he'll have his layover and he'll have his big bag of books and he'll get up, crack them out in the hotel and he'll just start studying and uh, he does most of his uh, studying on the road in between flights and on layovers, and, and, uh, but he, he's very serious about the Word of God, and I think you'll uh, see that tonight as he comes and uh, ministers the Word to us. So, John, come, and uh, we appreciate you, brother, and uh, looking forward to hearing about the story of the Good Samaritan. Thanks, Ken. Good evening. Well, I was an airline pod for... Uh, I guess around 25 years. I retired uh, last October, hit 65. They wouldn't let me do that, but they asked me to go train pilots up in Dallas, and that's uh, what I do now. Uh, Ken was right about what he said. Uh, it took a while to get the fighter pilot out of me uh, as an airline pilot, and so I uh, became a very smooth airline pilot for 25 years until my last flight, and that was my flight. And uh, I reverted back. I haven't told Ken this yet, but uh, my last flight was from LaGuardia to uh, Houston. And it was a night there had been a tropical storm that had come through. We were supposed to take off at 5 p.m., I think it was. We were about three and a half hours late. This thing was coming up from San Juan. 
and everything was delayed. I had 15 of my family members that Southwest was kind enough to fly out on my last flight uh, as a commercial pilot. And um, I remember taking the runway, uh, the New York's finest uh, had given me a salute with their water cannon. Uh, the problem was it never reached the airplane because the uh, tropical winds were blowing it back into the truck. I <laughs> still remember that, thinking that's a crazy water salute, a uh, foam salute, I guess you could say. But I remember taking the runway for the last time, and I looked at my first officer, and I said, uh, this, is my, this is my leg, George. I said, watch this. <laughs> so I uh, did a full-power takeoff, uh, laid rubber for about 100 yards down the runway, put the autothralls all the way up, and uh, we did a uh, good old Navy takeoff there into the goo, and it was wonderful. And uh, my, my son-in-law, who works for Sandia Labs, was on board. He travels all around the world <clears throat> flying airplanes as a passenger. And later that day or that evening at my house, he goes, John, he goes, uh, he's very serious, he's a scientist, he goes, John... I've flown uh, many times before uh, all around the world. And uh, what kind of takeoff was that in LaGuardia? (laughs) Very seriously, I looked at him and said, wind shear, wind shear. (laughs) So at any rate, let's open up. uh, That's enough flying stories for a while. Uh, Let's get up. uh, I'll open up to Luke chapter 10. We're going to study the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. Chris, thank you for that last Song. It was the perfect song for this message. So the Lord's uh, already at work. Thank you so much. So we're going to study the, the parable called the Good Samaritan. Uh, if you look at it in your Bibles, it goes from um, verses 30 of chapter of Luke 10, uh, 30 uh, through 37. But really to get to the bottom of this, though, we have to start uh, in verse 25. So let me read the text real quick. We'll go through it and then we'll uh, get right at it. Verse 25 And a lawyer stood up and put him to the teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered, Correctly, do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put on his own beast, put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three... Do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Go and do the same. Well, we almost all have heard this story. It's a synonym for doing a good work. Uh, Hospitals have uh, been named for this. 
Uh, the legal profession has even jumped uh, into the fray and come up with a, a good Samaritan law, which gives legal protection for people who may be without specialized training, uh, having come to the uh, uh, person in need, maybe it's on a freeway or at a public gathering called the Good Samaritan Law. Uh, this story then is well known by both Christians and non-Christians, but in reality, it has a different meaning than is what commonly thought. The story of the Samaritan then is all because of a question asked by a lawyer in verse 25. Why do all things start out with lawyers, by the way? Uh, verse 25. Uh, the question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, this question is one of the most important questions that could ever be asked. Because scripture says we all have an immortal soul, meaning all who are born will live forever. Now, this is not taught or accepted in academia today or by the worldly culture. But even so, mankind has generally believed throughout history that a person's soul is immortal. This can be seen in the way society deals with death. In Egypt, for example, the great pyramids in the death chamber, there would be found a boat so the pharaoh could sail on to the next life. The Greeks would often bury some with a silver coin in their mouth so they could pay the fare across the river. And the Vikings believed that when they died, they would go to be with the gods. They called it Valhalla. Now, in terms of where we are in Christ's life, it's about a year before Jesus will go to the cross. He is in the last year of his three-year ministry and has already spread the gospel throughout Galilee. And this last year is going throughout Judea, telling all the world about the way to find eternal life to anyone who would listen to him. Uh, Christ had just, prior to these verses, had just put together 70 of his uh, true disciples and sent them out two by two to spread the good news. So the 70, along with the 12, had just returned with some success. And that's where we are here in uh, Verse 25, which starts off the question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, lawyer, by the word in Greek, is called uh, nomokos, is a lawyer in Greek. Uh, Ikos is econ, and nomos means lawyer, or law, rather. Nomos means law. So ikos is econ, so a legal icon or lawyer, an expert in the law. So today when we think about lawyers, we think about either civil law or criminal law, but this lawyer was neither. He was not civil and he was not criminal. You see, Israel was a theocratic kingdom and thus had religious lawyers, experts not in Roman law, uh, not in civil law, but in the law of Judaism, starting with the law of Moses. So this lawyer is also called a scribe, a scribe, a lawyer who was an expert in all the Jewish legal system, from the meanings to all the regulatory functions. Now, generally in Scripture, we see that the scribes and the Pharisees were seen together because the scribes provided the legal counsel, if you will, to the Pharisees. So in the Gospels, we see this over and over, the two working almost in tag team against Christ. The scribes and the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the scribes. You see, they both hated Jesus along with the Sadducees and the Herodians and high priests. And they were always trying to find ways 
They could discredit Christ, find him breaking their law so they could indict him and put him to death. You see, he was rocking their power structure, and they were fearful. Now, we do not know if this lawyer was asking this question on his own or had been put up to it by the Pharisees, but really, it doesn't matter. Uh, This is a respectful question. Uh, The man stood up, not an interruption, addressed Jesus as teacher, uh, just a normal uh, way of addressing him. Uh, By the way, this question and several ones pop up in all the Gospels because the Jews, even though at that time they were in apostate state, they recognized the concept of eternal life. Uh, They strongly believed that God had promised an eternal kingdom and they would live forever. Yet they also knew the scripture spoke of a place of darkness and of terror So the question would not have been asked if a lawyer did not believe in eternal life. Think of it, though. Put yourselves in his shoes. What an honor, a privilege. This lawyer has been face-to-face with the Lord of life, asking really the right question, the appropriate question. But sadly, we're going to find out that this lawyer, this scribe, walks away facing eternal death. Just so sad. While preparing this, I thought long and hard about this question that he asked. It is probably the most important question really there is in life. I've never been asked this in a direct question by, uh, question by anyone. Are you like me? Maybe Ken has. But I've never been asked by anyone, uh, how do I find eternal life? I've never been asked that by any question. I guess it would be a preacher's dream. That's what everyone, if you're a Christian, a believer, would want. You would want to explain that to an unbeliever. So as Christians, we would cherish uh, being asked this question. However, why this question has not been asked of me, I have a very vivid memory of the opposite statement being asked of me. And uh, while I was preparing for this, I I could not forget it over and over again. Story goes like this, from 1972 to 1992, I flew fighters for the Navy. I flew the A-4 Skyhawk. It was a single-engine uh, single engine fighter. It was actually designed in 1952 by a guy called Ed Heinemann. It was called affectionately Heinemann's Hot Rod. Uh, he also designed a couple other planes that he's well known for. Uh, and this airplane, the A-4, I flew all the different models of it, and it actually flew until 1995. While I was in the Navy, I was a believer the whole time. It was a very rewarding time, a very challenging time. Uh, the har- hardship of being a Navy pod is the separation. Uh, I had five kids, uh, not at the beginning, as the career progressed, one at a time. But I got into a specialty called aggressor adversary flying because it allowed me to uh, take my family overseas and not have to be on the ship. Uh, which is six to nine months of separation. So I, I uh, got into the aggressor program, was accepted, and I was trained to fly like a Russian pilot, uh, which was, they were our main enemy during the Cold War. Uh, if you saw the movie Top Gun, that is what I did. Uh, we would engage the F-4s, the F-14s, would give them different simulations, different looks. It would be a MiG-17 one day, a MiG-19, a MiG-21, a MiG-25, and their A4 was best. It could turn, had a very good turning capability. If you remember the movie, 
And they had a little dart-like airplane that would uh, be chasing the fighters. That was the A-4, a single-seat fighter. Uh, it, was, it had a very good turning radius, so it was very good to simulate, especially the MiG-17 and MiG-19. <clears throat> so in the early 80s, I was, along with my family, was stationed for three and a half years in one of these squadrons in the Philippines. Uh, we would travel around the Orient, providing aggressor flying to other nations, as well as tangling with the, the fighters from the U.S. Western Pacific aircraft carriers, which would come through uh, on their way to, the, uh, to Japan and the Middle East. <clears throat> that being said, there was another pilot in the squadron, We'll call him George, who had a distinct dislike for me because I was a vocal Christian. Uh, dislike is really understated. Really, irrational hatred is uh, close. Uh, George was a proud and a incredibly talented sinner. Uh, men, you have probably seen this type. He reveled in his sin. Uh, he cheated on his wife whenever possible, whenever we'd go on a detachment. Not only that, he would publicly brag to the squadron about his exploits the following day in the squadron in vivid detail. Uh, he took special pleasure in trying to shock me with the details of his sin. I put up with this man for uh, three years, but could never really crack that hard shell on the outside. Never really got to him. I do remember, though, one night in uh, Tegu, Korea. I was asleep in our sleeping quarters at, at uh, about 345. I um, actually it was at 1 in the morning. I had a 3.45 wake-up call. And around 1, I was wakened by loud screaming in the hallway at 1 a.m. Uh, I listened to it for a little while, finally had enough, jumped out of my rack, ran into the hallway because now I'm awake. I've got to get up in two hours. And it's George and a couple of his friends. They had just come back from a, a night of partying. And George is severely intoxicated. As soon as he saw me, he addressed me by my call sign, which was tuna, like the fish. Uh, I always thought that, by the way, you sort of had to earn your call sign. I thought it was because my last name was Tune, T-U-N-A, but I think maybe, maybe I smelled like a fish. I don't know. But my call, my call sign was tuna. And he looked at me, this guy that dis- disliked me, he looked at me, and I'll never forget his words. Tuna. I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell. I came up to him. I tried to console him. Uh, I thought maybe this was an opportunity to lead him to the Lord, but if you've ever tried that with a person who's intoxicated, it doesn't go real well. Uh, he would not listen to me. He would not listen to my scripture. He would not listen to anything I said other than he was convinced he was going to hell. And in reality, I would probably have to agree with that assessment. I don't know what happened to George or where he is, but I've thought of him many times. But what I am saying is man has a sense of his immorality. Even the most hardened sinner, deep down inside, God gives them a conscience, a right and wrong button. Friends, we are all immortal beings. That is what Scripture teaches. That is what the Bible teaches. God has put an eternal soul in every human being. Excuse me. And that is what I was seeing in George that night. You see, his mind was gone. He was intoxicated. He was out for the count. But his soul was there stating the truth over and over and over again. You see, our so-called modern society through atheism, Darwinism, and humanism do their very best to convince people that this life 
He is all there is. By the way, these philosophies are all lies. They're all lies. Modern academia is lying to our kids, my kids, your grandkids, and my grandkids. Uh, Darwinism is a lie. Atheism is a lie. Young people, you are going to live forever, as one commentator said, because bodies die, people do not. People do not. In fact, it was Paul who said, if this gospel was not true, we of all people are to be pitied. But it is true. This is probably the only true thing we have in our nation right now. This is ultimate truth. And as we approach it, that's what we need to approach it as, ultimate truth. So this Bible, which is ultimate truth, not only talks about eternity, but it tells how you get into the kingdom of God, a concept this scribe knew a lot about. In fact, really the main message of the gospel is eternal life. Uh, John 10, 27 through 28 says, my, sh- uh, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 1 John 5, 11 through 12 says, And this is the record that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You see, the Bible is truth. Our culture, our society, does all it can to maintain our flesh, our bodies, but really is silent about the soul, the part of us that will live forever. Think of it if you watch TV today, the last week or two. What's it telling you about? Live for today. Entertain yourself. Look good. Even the commercials. There's nothing really for your soul in those commercials. Your skin can look good. Your Teeth can be whiter. Your hair maybe doesn't have to be gray. Your problem can be fixed. Even the church has been by this at times overemphasizing all the ways Jesus can fix you here. Your marriage, your money problems, your self-image, your dysfunction. Jesus can cure your dysfunction. That is a message of many churches. We don't really hear that here because we're, thank the Lord, in a scripturally based expository church. Folks, there is no guarantee in scripture that you will not have trouble and heartache in this life. Uh, Jesus doesn't promise us wealth, health, prosperity, a trouble-free marriage, a no-conflict life. But God will work good out of the bad. But oh yes, the Bible does talk about the future and the results of letting Jesus fix the problem of our ultimate dysfunction, our sinful nature. Well, unlike our culture, the Jewish culture taught about an eternal kingdom where God would rule through his Messiah. And unlike this age, there would be peace and righteousness. Uh, Daniel 12.2, which I think Ken's about to get to, says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake to everlasting life, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. This meant clearly that there were two spheres where the immortal soul of every person would go to be in the presence of God or away from his presence. 
So to the Jews, this question was on their mind, especially with Jesus during his ministry, proclaiming the kingdom of God uh, throughout Judea and Galilee. He basically eradicated disease from Israel. Did you know that? There weren't many sick in the land of Israel when Jesus walked on this earth because everyone who came to him, he healed. No disease in Israel. But he did talk about the demands of the kingdom, the need to be spiritually clean on the inside, not just on the outside, as the Pharisees majored in that. The outside, the appearance, how you look on the outside. Most importantly, remember who showed up before Jesus started his ministry. That would be John the Baptist, who the Bible says was the forerunner who preached what? He preached repentance. Thousands upon thousands showed up to hear uh, John's message. And if the Jews thought their additional 613 laws in addition to the Ten Commandments could possibly change them, nobody would have come out to hear John the Baptist. And that's exactly what the Jews did. They added so much. You see, they said in the Ten Commandments there's 613 Hebrew words. So let's make up 613 laws that we need to keep in addition to them. So this lawyer stands up, and it says here, and he puts Jesus to the test. This does not mean in a bad way or an evil way, but he wants to know if Jesus knows the answer. This lawyer, this scribe, knows his Old Testament. Remember, as a religious lawyer of the law, it was his job to know, and that's what he was. He was a religious lawyer, especially a specialist in the law of Moses. That was his job. He did it all day long. We don't know his name. Uh, This encounter stands alone, uh, not in any of the other Gospels. This is all we know about him is what we see here in this brief passage. By the way, this question is asked in other ways, Uh, not to this man. This is a standalone event here. But a similar question is asked, for example, in Mark 12, 28, by a different lawyer in another setting. And that was, what commandment is the foremost of all? What is the most important commandment? But that Mark question was clearly motivated by unholy means. That question had to be planted by a Pharisee, designed as a theological trick question to find Jesus possibly worthy of charges if he didn't answer it properly. But this question is different. This question is different. It was an honest question. It was not meant to be a tricky question. It's personal. It's personal. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What can I do? It appears to be a genuine question. Ask to who? Ask to the Lord of life. Think of that. This guy is asking the person who made the entire world by his word, who is life itself. And this lawyer has the privilege to ask our Lord, our Savior, what can I do to have eternal life? So the scribe seems to be taking personal responsibility by this question, and it's asked in the first person, isn't it? What can I do? Notice he does not ask it in the third person, what, what is necessary for someone to inherit eternal life, but what can I do? What shall I do? And he uses the word inheritance. Inheritance is used because that occurs when the person's life is over. 
that you inherit something from. So this life has to be over to gain or get an inheritance. Up to verse 26, Jesus, of course, knows this lawyer's heart. And instead of answering, asks, what is written in the law? See, that's the amazing thing about uh, talking to Jesus when he was in human form here. Uh, He could read minds because what? Because he was God. He was man and God. But when you'd ask him a question, he he knew your mind and he would give you the answer that you were thinking. Uh, Think about that. Before you could ask it, he knew what you were going to say. It must have been an amazing time to ask our Lord a question. So in verse 26, Jesus knows this lawyer's heart and says, What is written in the law? This also could be translated, How does it read to you? Or how do you recite it? You see, the first five books of the Bible were called the Torah. And these lawyers were experts in these books written by Moses. The sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, specifically verses 4 and 5, were part of verses known as the Shema and were recited during morning and evening prayers every day by devout Jews, twice a day, every day of the year. If you summarized all the law, they could be stated in the Ten Commandments. Uh, The first half of the commandments of the Ten Commandments are how you relate to God, and the second half is how you relate to people. So every day the Jewish people would recite Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which summarized the first half of the commandments. Then they added Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which summarized the second half of the Ten Commandments. Now, if the Jews could do this perfectly, loving God perfectly and loving their neighbor perfectly, all the commandments could be kept, and therein lies the problem. You see, the lawyer knew the answer to the question. No hesitation here. It came right out. So if he knew the answer, why did he ask the question? Although the scribe knew the answer to the question, he still wanted to ask Jesus not only for the question of orthodoxy in Jewish matters, in other words, Is this man, does he know his Old Testament? But also down in his heart of hearts, the dirty little secret of his was he knew he could not fulfill that law perfectly. Just no way. He had to have some respect for Jesus because the nagging question in the scribe's heart was, if eternal life was a matter of perfect love of God and neighbor, just no one would genuinely qualify To make matters worse for the scribe, look how he answers the question of how to have eternal life. Look how he answers it. The scribe says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is a clarion call for perfection, for perfection, just no getting around it. If you want to go to heaven, love God and men perfectly. That is what the law says. 
And by the way, this is agape love, the highest form of love. This is not eros love. It's not philo love. It's agape love, the love that God has. You want to go to heaven? That's what you got to do. So the sinful person is really in an impossible situation. Man's fallenness makes it impossible to love God perfectly. But that is what the law demands. That is what is exacted by Scripture. However, that is exactly the purpose of the law. Romans 3.20 says, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, see, the scribe was an expert in the law. That was his job. He is in a quandary, hoping that just maybe Jesus could give him an out. But look what the response was of the Lord. Our master says in verse 28, You have answered correctly. You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, let's be clear. Jesus is not telling the lawyer, this is how you get saved. No, he is saying, this is how you get life under the law. You want to keep the law? You know the law? You're talking about the law? You're an expert of the law? You have a doctor of law? We're talking law here? And this is the requirements of the law. This is how you get life under the law. Satisfy it fully or spiritual death. Again, the scribe knew the answer before asking him, but now his heart must have sunk. And wouldn't it have just been perfect if the next verse instead instead said, the scribe pounded his fist over his chest and said, I am a sinner, Jesus. I cannot do this. It is impossible. I can't keep the law. I try. I've tried. I give up to to love God perfectly. It is impossible. I can't do it. I'm not worthy of the kingdom. I want to live eternally, but I don't qualify. I can't do this. That's what we want to hear here. That's what we want to see. That would be the happy ending. We could all go home and say, another person found the Lord. But that's not what happens. It did happen to someone, though, in a similar situation, but not to this man. Look at Luke 18, just a few chapters over, verse 9. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I don't know, Ken, if you've given this to someone or not. You have? Ken's shaking his head yes, so I guess maybe I shouldn't give the punchline away. But the bottom line is we're in it now. Uh, Two men went up uh, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and was praying uh, this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. By the way, the Jews hated the tax collectors because they had tax franchises from the Roman government. Sort of like, get as much as you can from the people, and you get a percentage. The more you take, the more you get, because it's a percentage. And they were very unpopular, the tax collectors. But this story is about contrasting a Pharisee and a tax collector God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. That's the end we were looking for here. Back to Luke 10. That's what we wanted. You see, if he would have cried out to Christ for help, if he would have taken Christ at his word, Christ would have forgiven him. 
Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that is all he had to do. Lean on Christ. Take him at his word. And the scribe's sins would have been paid for on the cross, paid for in full. But unfortunately, verse 29 appeared. Let's look at 29. But wishing to justify himself... He said to Jesus, and um, who, who is my neighbor? <laughs> um, Lord, uh, who? I got a, one, one more question. You know, do, do you ever see the movie Columbo? Remember Columbo on TV? That crazy detective who asked the goofy questions? He was sort of like a stumbling, bumbling guy, and he'd always come up with the, the critical question. Now, Lord, I just have one question here. Why is the knife in his heart? I have that question. It's, he, always asked, he always asked the critical question. This is the critical question. And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Did you see Apollo 13? Remember that movie? Houston, we have a problem. This lawyer has a problem. He has a problem. This is a public forum, obviously, and this is a fatal public misunderstanding of God's holiness. This is tragic. This is painful to see the train wreck about to occur in slow motion and the parable of the Samaritan is the train wreck. Romans 10 verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law of righteousness righteousness to everyone who believes. We serve a merciful God Uh, Jesus could have walked away at this point and dismissed the scribe in his pride. But our Lord tries one more time when the scribe asks a clarification of just who his neighbor is. Interesting that the scribe skipped over the part of loving God. In effect saying, I'm good with God. Uh, Go over the neighbor part again. Didn't quite hear the second part of your question, Lord, Master. This scribe, what is he doing? He's trying to lower the law's demands and thereby raise his ability to keep the law, but on his own terms. Isn't that what we do as people, as humans? We try to elevate ourselves and somehow put down a God down a notch so we're not quite so out of balance. In other words, this scribe and really the whole system the Pharisees devised lowered God's standard of holiness and elevated their own. A serious and fatal miscalculation. But the master is patient. He tries one final time in an act of mercy by the parable. And now we're ready to start the parable. We're in verse 30. We'll go through it quickly. This story starting in verse 30 is a familiar place. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho, but the key is Jesus has already turned the scribe's question around from who is my neighbor 
to the quality and character in which one is to love his neighbor. You come down from Jerusalem. I haven't been there. Many of you have. But from Jerusalem to Jericho is a drop of about 4,000 feet over 17 miles, a very windy road. It had a very bad reputation because it was very windy. It was a favorite place for robbers to attack travelers. Now, this road is uh, called in Joshua 18:17. It's called the Pass of Adumim, meaning bloody pass, just not a safe place to travel. A man traveling along this road gets beaten up, robbed, and left to die in the parable. And since he is coming from Jerusalem, we can assume he is probably Jewish. Jesus, in verse 31, says a priest was going down the road. This should have been good news, right? A priest, a pastor, a priest. Should have been good news because a priest would know the Old Testament law. Specifically, Leviticus 19.34, it says, If you see a stranger in need, you, do, you need to do whatever it takes to meet the need. But in reality, not any hope because the priest, when he sees the problem, goes the opposite direction from the need. Wow, the opposite direction. This is not necessarily an indictment on Christ, on the priesthood, just a statement about a man that you would expect to help in this situation, but he did not. He was of no help. Jesus continues in verse 32, Likewise, a Levite came by, someone of the tribe of Levi. Now, priests were Levites also, but were sons of Aaron. Levites from Levi only were given priestly duties, were assistants to priests, were the temple police, etc. So this Levite here must have been like a temple assistant, an assistant to the uh, priest. And again, logically, probably was returning from his priestly service in Jerusalem, going back home to Jericho. The language here in the original, in verse 32, when he came to the place and saw him, is a little bit different from that of the priest. It indicates he came close, right over the body, very close and looked at it. He got, he got right over it and said, man, that's, that's pretty nasty there. <laughs> he had a nasty cut on his head. And the result, however, is the same. He sees the problem, goes out of his way not to help. So what did Jesus just do? He gave a vivid illustration of two men with no love. Remember the original question is, how can I obtain eternal life? And Jesus said, if you love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart, you will live. These first two men, although religious Levites, really did not qualify because they did not keep the commandments, specifically loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. So just because you are religious, doing all the religious ceremonies will not get you into the kingdom of God. Now comes the surprise ending. All the parables of Jesus had some kind of surprise ending, which was very common in the parables of Jesus. Along comes a Samaritan. You see the Jews and the Samaritans despised each other. Samaritans were actually Jewish offspring who, after the northern kingdom was taken Captive, remained in the land, intermarried with the Gentiles, and the Jews thought that they polluted the Jewish race because of that. They were rebuffed when they came back 70 years later to try to help Nehemiah rebuild the temple, so the Samaritans rebuilt their own temple on Mount Gerizim. The hatred was so strong that when a Jew went north south or south north, the shortest way was through Samaria. Samaria, but they went all the way around that country 
because they detested the Samaritans. They would go all out of the way when they went north-south, east or west, but not through Samaria because they, they did not like them. So here was the fierce enemy of the Jews, and instead of going the other direction, he stops. The other two religious men did not stop. The other man, a Jewish outcast, if you will, stops to show love. This man bandaged his wounds. <clears throat> Excuse me. He is cleaning the wounds, pouring out his wine as an antiseptic, puts him most likely on his donkey or a mule, his beast, it says, walks the animal and the wounded man to an inn where he can stay. What's it say here next? The next day he puts out two denarii, which commentators say would be about 64 days of room and board. Furthermore, he leaves with an open account. Do whatever it takes to take care of him. I will make it right when I return. So he leaves this man he doesn't know, wounded, 64 days of room and board. Do whatever it takes. I have an open account. Whatever it takes to make this man right. Here's my credit card. They didn't have credit cards then. Here's my denarii credit. This level of care is done for ourselves, folks, but not for a complete stranger. Uh, do people treat complete strangers like this? No, they don't. If you had treated a stranger like this on a one-time occasion, maybe, but this is not done on a regular basis to strangers. Never. You see, this is about love with no limit. Doing whatever it takes to fix the situation. Just unheard of. Way over the top. Guess what, church? This is what it takes to get into the kingdom of God. Limitless love, God's agape love to a stranger and an enemy. That's what scripture says. Jesus then asks, which of these three proved to be a neighbor? Of course, the scribe says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do the same. Go and do the same. Translation, love your enemy limitlessly, sacrificially, with unlimited generosity. Can we love that like that? Can I love like that? Are we capable of doing that? Well, Jesus is merciful and was giving the scribe one more opportunity to say, I cannot do that. I cannot love like that. It's just not within me. I don't have that capability. I have a defect in me that needs to be fixed. I can't love like that, Master. Well, not only the scribe can't love like that. You see, I'll tell you a secret. I can't love like that either. Can you? As a Christian, I am not loving people like that. How do we reconcile that? But it's by grace we are saved through faith. The Lord forgave us when we became Christians for not being able to love God perfectly and our neighbor. And he continues to forgive us for our lack of perfect love as Christians. You see, we're not going to be able to love God perfectly until we are in his presence. Our Lord gave the scribe every opportunity to admit his works, his goodness, just did not meet God's standard. Jesus, our Lord, was ready to give this scribe grace 
and mercy. He was ready to give my fellow Navy pot George grace and mercy. But you have to be in the place that you want it and then ask for it. No one can do it for you. You have to do it one-on-one with the Lord. Let's look at, in closing, look, look at Ephesians 2. Verses 1 through 10, and I'll read it to you. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I think this summarizes this very well. It's called Made Alive in Christ. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's pray. Lord, it's a serious matter to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, None of us are capable of facing you with our sins unaccounted for. Uh, We freely admit we do not love our neighbor perfectly and others uh, perfectly. We stand guilty. We repent, asking for your mercy and grace. Uh, Thank you for new life in Christ and that very slowly we're being conformed into your image by the power of of the Holy Spirit. And we all pray this in the name of our Savior.